go to Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah chapter number 1, and I would like to minister this evening on a topic entitled Israel's Dilemma, Isaiah chapter 1 beginning with verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Isaiah 1 verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot away with it. It's iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away evil from your doings from before my eyes cease to do evil. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They shall be, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Israel's dilemma. I suppose that if we could go back in time, some 760 years before the birth of Jesus, and we're given the opportunity to walk the streets of Judah and Jerusalem, we'd probably be astonished by what we'd find. We'd probably see high places, idolatry. We'd still see people that love the Lord, a sort of a remnant that is following God, a gentleman by the name of Uzziah was on the throne, and the scripture says he reigned for 52 years. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he refused to abolish all of the iniquity from foreign religions. Because of that, it became a snare to the children of Israel. Uzziah eventually became a leper, and then he died. But if we were to be able to walk through some of these cities... Go through Jerusalem where the temple of God was, where the true and pure worship was. We probably would eventually stumble upon a man by the name of Isaiah. We would have heard his voice. He would have been prophesying and declaring to Israel to repent and to turn from their iniquities. In fact, chapter 1, verse 1 speaks of the vision of Isaiah. It was something that he saw. He prophesied during the reign of several kings. He even said, hear, O heavens and earth, give witness to the words that I'm speaking. He says in verse number nine, except the Lord of hosts had left a very small remnant. We should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine him using Sodom and Gomorrah as a sort of allusion to what Israel had become during his day. The wickedness that was there. Say, what is it about Sodom and Gomorrah that is so bad? Well, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50 says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. 
problem with the plain cities or the cities of the plains of Saudi of Sodom and Gomorrah was the fact they were prideful. They thumbed their nose at God. They said, we'll do what we want to do in any way that we want to do it. We'll live the lives that we find pleasing to us regardless of what any kind of a God may think. And so Isaiah, he calls this to the remembrance, the remembrance of the children of Israel. And he says to them in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. In his mind, he says, I see in these cities. Same thing I've read about in the law concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason he says give ear unto the law of our God is because the law of God had been despised. Now consider that. God gave his word to Moses. Moses inscribed the history of this world. This world. He gave us the Ten Commandments. He described how the tabernacle should be built. He told us about our conduct and our behavior. Yet hundreds of years later, people have decided we don't need the word of God. We could live any way that we want to live. And we find this same opinion, this same idea today being manifested in the nations in which we live. Even Jesus made the statement that because of the sins of a city, people would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment because of the iniquity of folks. Give ear to the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. He's saying, listen to what I'm saying. Why would God raise up someone like Isaiah? It is because Israel had a history of serving God and then falling away. And then God had to raise up someone to preach revival or restoration. How did it all begin? God took one man by the name of Abraham through his union with Sarah. He had Isaac, who was the promised child. Through that promised child came forth Jacob and Esau. Through Jacob, God chose to continue the line of promises. Jacob had 12 sons. He had daughters also, but 12 sons. And those 12 sons each became the head of a tribe. They eventually went down into Egypt. They had the favor of the Pharaoh as long as Joseph was alive, but Joseph died. They became an oppressed people. They cried unto the Lord. God supernaturally preserved Moses, raised him up to deliver them with powerful signs and wonders. And then eventually the man of God, Moses, died. And his successor, Joshua, led Israel into the land of promises, and during Joshua's day, they served the Lord. During the elders of Joshua's day, they served the Lord, but they slowly began to fall away from the truth. That happens to a lot of people. You remove the pillars from their lives. You take away the people that have walked with God. You remove a mother, a father, a spouse, a pastor, or anybody that, that people have leaned upon, and sometimes they'll drift backwards into apostasy. The children of Israel had this up and down relationship with God. They would serve him for a season and then backslide. Then God would raise someone up again. And here they are now in this position of apostasy and turning from the Lord, trying to mix and mingle the truth with error. And God sends the prophet along to stand there and say, give ear, people. Listen to the law of our God. And folks in that day are no different than people in our day. We know that 
The law of God is not esteemed and valued like it is in other places. At one time it had been. But do you realize that the middle states of the United States of America and the Bible Belt in the South is part of the last of the contingency of cities and villages that have tried to hold to the, the pure word of God? You follow along the coastal areas in a lot of the larger cities. They've discarded the word of God. Think about New England where Anna just returned from. There was a time when that entire region was captivated by God's word. People loved God. The churches were influential. You had orthodox preachers that ministered the word in purity. They lived what they preached. Early pilgrim. Founders came here with Bibles in their hands. They got off the boat with Geneva study Bibles and they learned about God looking at those notes. You had to be a citizen member of a church before you could even be a citizen voter in the community. They wanted to make sure that all of the members of the community knew what the scripture taught about right and wrong before anybody went to vote. But over a period of time, the word of God became something that was pushed to the side. People began to complain and say, why does someone need to go to church or have a relationship with God to be able to vote? Pretty soon they started saying, why should someone have a connection to a church to run for public office? And by the time of our founding fathers, when the American Revolution took place, even though the Bible was still important and even impressive to a lot of them, they still wanted to have a nation that did not have a particular religion that was pushed. Folks, nobody ran for a political office back then without looking over their shoulder to hear what the preacher was saying. But today it's not the same. You can turn on television, they'll mock a minister, they'll mock a church. If you even hint like you believe in God, you become the object of someone's scorn. They might even laugh at you because you say you still believe in ancient traditions. They'll call you superstitious. Amazingly, the scripture goes on to tell us in verse 11, 12, and 13 that the mixing and mingling of error with truth was to such an extent that there were people in the children of Israel that still went to the temple and made offerings to God. They saw nothing wrong with error and truth mixed together. So God had a question. He said, what's the purpose of all your sacrifices if you're not going to listen to me? Who is it that has required all of this? If you're, It's your hand if you're not going to take the time to obey what the scriptures say. Imagine that for a second. Here are people that are worshiping in the Hittite religion, worshiping Baal in the Canaanite religion, and at the same time coming to the, the church house and they're trying to worship God in spirit and in truth while they bring in all of these other kinds of religions. God said, I disapprove of those. I'm not happy with what you're doing. So he says in verse 13, don't bring any vain offerings and incense being an abomination to me. I understand that we daily are confronted with a society and a culture that views religion differently than it did 50 years ago. 
But I want to remind you that when it comes to serving God, I still think the church ought to have the greatest influence in the community. I do. A small little suburb around the Los Angeles area called Hollywood has an exorbitant amount of influence over our nation. You have about 1,500 actors and actresses that make all kinds of films, and they have power in this nation. You have 500 or so people up on Capitol Hill that have been elected by the people. They have the power to influence culture. You go to the major metropolitan cities where there are colleges and universities and typically they are governed by people that have no relationship with God. And if there is a relationship with God, it has been mixed up and it's convoluted and it has all kinds of truth and error connected with it. So that now we don't even know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. You say, Pastor, how do you know that we're confused about what's right and wrong? I'm glad you asked, so I'll give you some examples. The fact that adults, grown individuals, some educated, master's degrees, doctor degrees, don't even know what bathrooms our kids ought to use. That's confusion. The fact that we can say that there are more than 20 different genders for individuals shows you the confusion. Jesus said in Matthew 19, have you not read what God wrote in the beginning, how he made them male and female? Those are the only two genders that I'm aware of. I didn't realize how ignorant I was until I read the National Geographic one time, and they explained to me how many genders there were on planet Earth. I said, wow, where have I been hiding? In this nation of ours, a child can go and have a major medical surgery. Not only abortion, they're having other surgical procedures now. And mom and dad don't even have to be notified about that. Nevertheless, if that same child wants to go to the natural museum on the school bus, they've got to get a written permission from mom and dad. Utterly confused. We have today created the kind of disorder in our nation that I wonder sometimes, has God mingled a spirit of confusion in this nation? Are we so blind to what's right and what's wrong that somewhere behind all of this is just really a setup for what God's doing in these final days? The scripture says that the Lord told them in verse 13, your appointed feasts, your new moons and your holy days. I'm not interested in them. Your new moons, they don't attract me. I despise them. They trouble me. I'm weary with them. It would break my heart for God to say to me that all of your worship and your religious activity is of no value to me. Can you imagine hearing that? But yet there will be people that stand before the Lord and hear the phrase, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never have known you. Can you imagine going to church Sunday after Sunday, singing hymns, singing contemporary songs, sitting on a pew, sitting on a chair, reading your Bible in the sanctuary, quoting the scriptures with individuals only for God to turn his nose up at it because he finds it all repugnant, a mixture of error and truth. 
This is exactly what people in our nation want today because they don't want anyone to identify what is true. They want a belief system that says what's true for you may not be true for me. What's correct for me may be incorrect for somebody else. So long as we're sincere, that's all that matters. I told you on Tuesday night, if someone asked me, are there many roads to heaven? I'll say there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But if somebody asked me if all roads lead to God, I said, it doesn't matter what religion you're in. Everybody's going to appear before the throne of God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It could be a Hindu, a Buddhist, an atheist. They will all stand before God. God's going to have questions. And if that name isn't inscribed, if there's not a new name written down in glory, it's going to be trouble. Lots of trouble. So in the present conditions of our nation, the Lord asked the question in verse 15, when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Can you imagine God shunning people saying, I will not even listen to your prayers. But do you do you think something like that goes on today? I do. I do. I think there are a lot of people. I think there are a lot of places called churches that God doesn't hear a thing that they ask for when they pray. Can, can, can you imagine me, that beautiful wife that I have, can you imagine me growing up totally confused about who I am? And then turning around saying, I believe I'm called to be a preacher of God's holy word. But I'm in love with a man. And then can you imagine a church opening up its doors, allowing me to stand up in the pulpit, touching this holy book, I'd be afraid my hands would burn up. And then get up in front of a congregation and tell jokes and stories about how I spent the evening with my lover and how I kiss him and he kissed me, and then, then proclaim the word of God. But it goes on. And I'm telling you, that kind of mixture and error doesn't please God. We, we had a, a man in one of the other towns where we have a church and he had a situation in his denominational church where they wanted to have a homosexual wedding. So it was a big ruckus in the town about that, about whether or not he was going to let it go on. And so the people were just dividing all different ways. And he came to the ministerial alliance and I made sure I was there for that meeting. And I, I sat down. And I was listening to them go back and forth, and the, the preacher, he, he laid it out in front of us. He said, this is what the congregation is wanting to do. He said, I've got reservations about it. What do you guys think? And they all let him know to a man, don't do it. And I spoke up, and I said, do not do it. I said, you throw open that door, and you'll never get that door closed. I said, I don't have, care how much pressure they put on you. You stand and preach the truth if all of them leave and there's nobody left but someone that's gray-headed 97 years of age. You preach the word of God and don't change. Well, that's exactly what he did. He, he held fast to the truth. He told the folks, I'm not going to do it. And just as soon as they got him out of there, they brought in somebody who threw the doors wide open. And the kind of iniquity taking place there now is astonishing. All I'm telling you is that I don't care how many quilting societies there are. I don't care how many ice cream socials people have. 
And it doesn't matter how many maypole dances that the church sponsors. If people don't have a relationship with God, God looks upon what he disapproves of and we readily accept. And he says, I don't find that acceptable in my sight. But after he identified all of these problems, Isaiah does begin to tell them about the antidote. He says in verse number 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He said, obey God, purify yourself through obedience. He says in verse 17, learn to do well, seek justice, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. They had even forsaken good works because they were so deep in idolatry. But the beauty of this now is that you don't have to wash yourselves. You don't have to purify yourselves. It says in verse number 18, Come, let's reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah said there is an answer to the sin problem. Jesus Christ can cure you and cleanse you of all iniquity. Consider that. God had an antidote when he raised up Isaiah. God knew that Isaiah would preach to people who would not be willing to listen. But he still told him to go. Every time a prophet preached the truth to people in ancient times, it was the long suffering and the loving kindness of God. Have you ever thought about that? That every time a preacher tells the truth to you, regardless of how irritated you may be by what he's saying, that's still a manifestation of God's love towards you because God is once again trying to curb your behavior and turn you towards what's right. That's what your mom and dad did. You may not have always liked what mom and dad believed, but mom and dad's objective was to keep you on the right path. You didn't even have to agree with the path or agree that they had the power to do it. But the scripture says, he that spares the rod spoils the child. And this generation today, a lot of people don't like that text. And Nebraska, like Mississippi and a handful of other states, are only a few of them left still allow parents to spank their children because the psychologists and psychiatrists have said it's not good to do because you somehow you somehow bruise or wound a little child psychologically when you do that in fact they even tell parents today don't even raise your voice at a child I can tell you now, my parents would have long ago been put in jail. <laughs> long ago would have been put in jail. The people who say don't even spank a child in anger, I'm telling you, my parents would have been in jail. But it was the love that they had for you that caused them to want to curb your behavior. And you should be grateful every day that you had a mom and dad that chastened you in love. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about chasing you in love. They did not want to leave you to yourselves. And sometimes the raising of the voice was necessary to get your attention. Nobody ever walked away from listening to Jeremiah cry out in the gates of the temple, repent, amend your waves. Nobody said, I feel like I'm being abused because he's yelling at me. They needed to be yelled at. They were worshiping other gods. They had forsaken the truth. 
And some of the people in our nation need to be brought back to the heel of Calvary and to realize that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son and that Jesus came into this world, climbed up on the cross. And there he stood on that cross and he hung there and received the condemnation and wrath that should have come to us. They poked him in the side and out came the blood in the water. Because of every drop of blood that was shed on that hill, we can put our faith in him and we can find forgiveness of sins. There's never been anybody in this world that has ever done something so bad that they can't find forgiveness of sins. And if your conscience bothers you about something in your past, it doesn't matter what it is, God still forgives. No matter how bad it is, somebody could have committed murder, had an abortion, ended up in a wrong relationship, had a foul mouth, had a drinking problem, whatever it was. Self-righteousness, believing that they were better than other people. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses. And I don't have to feel condemned about my yesteryears because the Lord has made it possible for me to believe and then to accept that I'm made righteous now in the presence of God. Every man or woman that trusts in Jesus, they're as clean and as holy and as innocent as a newborn babe that comes into this world. Jesus said, come, reason with me. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, hanging there on the cross with soldiers gambling over his clothing. His prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What is he saying? He's saying that I, I even forgive them despite the fact they're the ones that placed me up here. Don't tell me you can't forgive. If God can forgive us, even though you may struggle to forgive yourself, you need to know the answer is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how you minister to people when you're talking with folks who believe they've done so many bad things. One time, years ago, preaching in, down in Plainville, we had a gentleman who, after the message, had really been touched by it, tears in his eyes, and we're just kind of talking, he and I, and, and he was telling me, preacher, you don't realize what all I've done. He said, I'm a Vietnam vet, and he can articulate it a little bit of all the stuff he had to be involved with in Vietnam, terrible times despicable things that went on. But when he told me that, there were two things I needed to let him know, and that was number one, no matter how bad you think your sins are, there's somebody else that's done worse than you. And number two, it doesn't matter who the worst person is on this planet, the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive them too and cleanse them of all of their iniquity. So the person who says to you, you don't realize what all I've done, well, it's probably true that I don't realize what all you've done. But you've got to ask yourself, do you realize what all God has done to make it possible for you to be forgiven? If you've ever seen snow on a day that has been untrammeled and no car tracks through it and the sun shining down on it, then I know that you realize that that's a beautiful picture and image. It's dazzling. And sometimes it's so dazzling that the light reflecting off the snow, it's hard to even drive when it's coming in different directions. But yet, 
God says to the children of Israel here in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God is using imagery that they can understand. Now, scarlet is a deep reddish color. But imagine something being so transformed that in a few moments, God is able to cleanse us. Isn't that amazing? It's like a black cow that's able to give out yellow butter and white milk. Yeah. And then God can take somebody whose sins have discolored their lives and destroyed them. And essentially he can wash them and afterwards they can be totally clean. This is what we're talking about. So Israel's dilemma was simple. It was one of sin. They had to decide what they wanted to do. And in closing, then the, the Lord said there in verse number 19, if you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. You have to want to do this. You have to desire to live for God and be willing. Get willing quick. Because there are some things that we do, but we're not willing to do, but we do it because we have no other choice. But it's different when you're willing to do it. There's something inside of you that desires to do it. And I think it's a whole lot easier to obey God because you're willing than it is to try to obey God when you're not willing. Because essentially in your heart you're still disobedient. The Bible says the ways of a transgressor are hard. Very difficult to obey somebody that you don't like and you don't want to follow through orders that they've given you to do. But when you consider that God loved you so much that he provided you with life and provided you with the blood of Jesus, how wonderful it is. Be willing, be obedient, eat the good of the land. Last verse says, if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured, you'll be destroyed. God's plan for you is blessing. God's plan for me is the same. Along that road, he expects us to be obedient to him. And in a culture today that is so opposed to the truth of God's word, in a culture today that looks upon its past and its history, and they look upon it with disdain, and they act as though they're ashamed of it. I'm telling you, folks, people like us have to sound the alarm and open up our mouths and let people know we're going to stand for truth. Because regardless of what happens in this life, one day we'll stand before God. We've got one opportunity to serve God. That's during this lifetime. You're on that job and somebody comes up to you and they're trying to provoke you to say things that uh, they might be able to try to use to bring a lawsuit against you or a business. Be wise about it. I mean, because that, that's what's going on today. I've told people that work in hospitals and stuff, if somebody comes to you and asks your opinion about this or that, I said, look, you've you got to let people know. I can give you my personal opinion, but here's what you need to know. If I give it to you, it, all it is is a personal opinion. Or you don't have to give it at all. You can say, I'll talk to you out on the sidewalk once we get off the job. Or you can say, I'll talk to you when I get home. Or you can say, let me give you a CD of my pastor preaching and that'll tell you exactly what I believe. But don't let the devil try to set you up to produce problems in your life. I take advantage of the fact that I'm a pastor and a preacher because people expect me to give my opinion on a lot of things and I give it whether they want it or not. 
They start talking about this or talking about that. I bring it up when these these high schools bring me in to counsel privately with different people. And here I've got a little kid in front of me that says they're in love with somebody of the same gender. And then they try to sneak me through the back door. I'm wondering why are they bringing me through the back door? I know why they're bringing me through the back door and, the, and they don't want anybody to know because they don't want there to be a lawsuit. But at the same time, they know the kid is in trouble and they need somebody. Somebody that'll talk to him. I had one kid one time, and he said that he had talked to a priest in a particular town. And the priest said to him, Well, you know, if, if, if you like a guy, I don't see why that's such a bad thing. And he said to me, Well, is your opinion like the priest at all? I said, I promise you it's not. I promise you it's not. I said, Your grandparents believe such and such said, your parents believe such and such. I said, the reason they believe like that is because of what the good book says. And I said, the good book is right even when the priest is wrong. And you hold to what the scripture says, and you'll be better in the end. Turn from your wicked ways and serve God. We'd be a lot, we're a lot more tactful when we say it, but that essentially is what we say. And I think that's why they keep asking us over and over again in these different towns. Please come back, come back and talk to the kids. Let's stand. I feel for, I feel for this generation, you know, our, our workers in professional places have challenges, you know, and they ought to have a church behind them that strengthens them and encourages them. Because if anybody in any of our fellowships ever ended up in court over something that had to do with what the Bible teaches, you better believe Pastor Darrell will be coming right through there to be a witness and to climb up on that stand and say, here's what thus saith God. It doesn't matter whether the judge or the prosecutor likes it or not. The Bible's going to say the same thing tomorrow morning. Israel's dilemma has become ours. Are we going to serve him or are we going to try to just mix it all together? See, but folks, as we pray tonight, let's pray for our nation. <clears throat> let's ask God to turn this nation in a different direction. Let's ask God to help each one of us be a strong witness because we've got to leave something behind for the next generation of young people that are coming up. Because if all we leave behind is what this culture is offering today, folks, there'll be very little of the truth in our small towns out here in 50 years. That's if the Lord tarries. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're asking you to have mercy on this nation. I know when you look down here at the United States, you see confusion on every hand. You see problems in different places. But I'm asking you, God, raise up men and women that will preach the word of God without compromise or fear. Let your holy calling burn in the hearts of people that truly want to preach the Bible. And God, we pray that for those that are playing church and those preachers that are not truly called, Father, get them out of the pulpit. Move them out of the scene so that people can once again be stirred by the truth. Let there be a spirit of grace and supplication that falls upon your church. Baptize that fake church with a spirit of repentance and let them turn from what's wrong to what is right. 
And God, we ask you to let your anointing break out in your true church and let there be healings and salvations in the mighty power of Almighty God. Let there be a revival amongst our young people and amongst our young adults. Oh God, let our elderly people come into heaven knowing that they're still hearing the word of God. And God, we pray that you'll do all of these wonderful things through a mighty outpouring of the Holy Ghost in this nation. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen. How many of you believe 